The following program is sponsored by the National... ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, 
persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life, life is at work in you. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporal, but what is unseen is eternal. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. This is that wonderful passage of Scripture from Second Corinthians, the fourth chapter. I want to share with you a story today of a of a woman who was so filled with the presence and power of God that he was shown forth everywhere, everywhere she went. She was only a Christian for eight years. But in that time, God marvelously demonstrated himself in her life. I'm sharing it with you to allow you the opportunity to see there is something much more, much deeper, much more powerful and exciting that intimacy with God can bring into our hearts if we will but choose to spend the time, if we will give ourselves to him. There was a a song we used to sing. The words were, what you are speaks so loud that the world can't hear what you say. They're looking at your walk, not listening to your talk. They're judging by your action every day. Don't believe you'll deceive by claiming you've never known. They'll accept what they see and know you to be. They'll judge you by your life alone. They're looking at your walk, not listening to your talk. Men and women of darkness bring with them an unwholesome atmosphere wherever they go. They can, however, more easily deceive an adult than a child. Generally speaking, children are better in registering evil influence and detecting sham than are adults who are often taken in by men who are adept at flattery and who with feigned speeches make merchandise of others. In every church there are many such persons. But if evil can be felt, how much more can righteousness be radiated? It is said that when when this great man, Charles Finney, would walk through a factory, the workers at their benches would feel the influence of his godliness and be deeply affected. On one occasion, He walked into a factory, and this was a group of people who had determined they would not accept the message of holiness that Finney was bringing. And as he stepped in the door, he noticed that one of the women working at a loom fixed her eyes upon him. And so he turned and looked at her, and as he did so, she fell She fell to the floor and began to weep. He walked over, began to minister to her, and the owner of the factory said, Shut it down. It's time to get right with Jesus. 
there is an influence of righteousness that accompanies the righteous. And there is an influence of death that accompanies the evil. In the early 1900s, there was a very well-known evangelist and an author by the name of James A. Stewart. He gives a very fascinating and moving account of how a young university student exerted a powerful influence for righteousness and holiness upon all she met. He writes, At the same time that I was saved during a mighty movement of God in my city of Glasgow, Scotland, a girl about the same age who was also saved, her name was Helen Ewan, She was just a slip of a girl, but at the very threshold of her new life in Christ, she crowned him as absolute Lord and was thus filled with the Holy Spirit. She had accepted the invitation of her Lord to drink abundantly. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. John seven thirty seven to 39 The torrents of water began to flow from, from Helen's life almost immediately. Helen Ewan was born about 1910, into an ordinary working-class family. She was the only child. Both of her parents loved Jesus supremely. The blessed Son of God was the center around which the whole household revolved. They lived for only one thing, and that was to please God in in every detail of their lives. Three well-marked Bibles were always conspicuous in their living room when I visited them. After her conversion at the age of 14, Helen's whole personality was radiant with the glory of the Lord. God in his sovereign grace had shown into her darkened soul in order that through this ordinary earthenware container might be magnifying the surpassing majesty of the power of the gospel. I want to stop a moment. This was a Christian family. This young woman was raised as a Christian. But we do not enter into Jesus Christ through our parents. God has no grandchildren. It's necessary for even one growing up in a Christian family to finally have the light of God shown into the dark interior of that person's soul. Children are not born righteous. They are born into the family of the ancient man, Adam. They are born with with wickedness already prevalent in their hearts. We will never be lost because of Adam's sin. Every man is responsible and every woman is responsible for his or her own sin. You will not be judged based on some idea of original sin. You will be judged based on the sin of your own heart. And at the age of 14, this young woman had the radiant glory of God in his sovereign grace shone into her darkened soul in order that through this ordinary earthenware container of a, of a young woman Jesus might be magnified. 
Now this manifestation of his glory astonished all of us. Hers was only a common life, but it was lit up with the glory of God. I often wondered how she could stand so much glory in her fragile earthenware container. Being full of the Holy Spirit, she was full of Jesus. And as she studied the Word of God under the illuminating guidance of the Holy Spirit, she took up the treasures of the Lord Jesus and revealed them. He took up and revealed these treasures unto her, and they made her heart dance with joy. Many times she would stop Christians on the street and with a radiant face tell of some choice portion of Scripture where she had found some new picture of her blessed Redeemer. These friends often left her presence weeping. They said, We've seen Jesus. We've looked into his glorious face. The awe of God remained upon their souls throughout the remainder of the day. Like Spurgeon, she was at her very best when she told us of her Lord Jesus. It was at such times she stood out as a solitary figure, so far removed from the rest of us. She knew the Lord in such a deep, intimate way. Many testified that just seeing her passing smile or her cheery, good morning, God bless you, was an uplifting tonic to them the rest of the day. In her prayer life, Helen was such an example to us all. She arose each morning around 5 a.m. to commune with her Lord. She wouldn't turn on the heat in her cold little room or, or seek to make herself comfortable in any way, feeling that she could be more alert in the cold. And besides, those for whom she would be praying in foreign lands, they were not sitting in comfort. She would begin her communion with praise and worship. She then would read the word of God to warm her heart. She remembered the words of her fellow Scot, Robert Murray McChaney, who said, It is the look that saves, but it is the gaze that sanctifies. Helen gazed with rapture into the face of her Lord. I could not mention to you the expression of adoration which she wore and which she wrote down describing in her diary after such times with her Lord. They are too sacred for publication. After fellowship and communion, followed her ministry of intercession for friends and family, for her assembly, for hundreds of missionaries on the foreign fields. Then came her prayer ministry for the unsaved. She had a list of unsaved persons to whom she had testified, for whom she prayed daily until they were born again. Her yearning after the salvation of the lost it was awful to behold. The reason God gave her so many souls among rich and poor, young and old, illiterate and intelligent, was that she agonized for them in constant intercession inside the veil. There was nothing vague or general about her pleas. After her translation... Her mother kindly allowed me to go over her diaries, and there I saw that the petitions expressed in them were strong and definite. She gave the date when she began to pray for a person, and then the date when the prayer was answered. These diaries revealed a prayer life that moved God and man. No wonder that when God promoted her to glory at the age of 22, many wept together 
throughout Scotland, and missionaries in far-off lands felt they had lost their greatest prayer warrior. Not only at the early morning hour did Helen commit to her Lord the whole of the new day with all that it entailed, but all through the day she sought his guidance in matters small and great. It was no small thing for her to shop for some personal piece of clothing, and she might be seen to pause in front of a store to seek his guidance before going in for even a piece of ribbon. She must please the Lord Jesus in all things, and she would not be led by the traditions of men. That no doubt explains the remark of her friends that Helen was always dressed right. Helen seeking after lost souls put all of us to shame. Here again she seemed to rise head and shoulders above us all, even among tens of thousands of believers in our great city at that time. I've been out on the streets of Glasgow near midnight with my tracts and gospel text boards. On many occasions when I would see Helen busy in her own method of personal soul winning, I've seen her on a cold Scottish winter's evening with her arms around a poor drunken prostitute, telling her of Jesus and his love. On other occasions, she would be dealing with drunken men, seeking to lead them to her Savior. In the evangelistic meeting, she was always on the alert for lost souls. Sitting near the rear of the building, she would see a woman sitting alone, sorrow written on her face and weariness in her eyes. Under the guidance of the Spirit, Helen would slip over and sit beside her, praying inwardly during the whole of the service. And when the lady rose to leave, Helen would leave with her, talking about the message and encouraging the lady to unburden her heart. In this way, more than one soul who was burdened with the cares of this life, bowed down with the weight of sin and despair, was led to know the Savior as Helen pointed her to the Lamb of God under the lamppost or while waiting in the streetcar stop. When finally she entered the University of Glasgow, she used to walk several miles from her home to the varsity each day so she could distribute tracts along the way. At the same time, she could not ride the streetcar because she wanted to save the fare to give it to the missionary cause. Needless to say, she had the joy of leading many students to Christ on campus. Robert Murray McCheney used to seal his letters with a sketch of the sun going down behind the mountains and with a motto over it, The Night Cometh. It was the same feeling of urgency that drew Helen on. Like Murray McCheney and Samuel Rutherford, Helen carried the fragrance of Christ with her. And like William C. Burns, she manifested the power of the Spirit which so few have ever possessed. Her body was a walking temple of the Holy Spirit. Thus, wherever she went, the power of God was manifested. When she entered into any service, immediately the atmosphere was, cha was charged with his power. I've known her to slip quietly into a prayer meeting, which had already begun, and sit on the back seat. Yet every one of us knew that she had arrived because of the mighty sense of the presence of God manifested in our midst. Evangelists often sought after her service. It was not that she could sing or speak in public. I don't think she ever sang a solo or gave a public testimony in any of their campaigns. All she did was sit quietly in the meeting and pray. 
Yet these evangelists knew that if they could only have Helen attend their service, there would be a mighty anointing upon the meeting. Some leading evangelists have told me that she was the most remarkable person that they'd ever known in this way. One outstanding English evangelist whom an angel when an aged warrior testified that possibly the greatest campaign he'd ever conducted was one in which Helen was able to attend every service for two weeks while she was on her vacation. I was talking one day with two professors from the University of London. They were believers. We were talking about dynamic Christianity when one of them suddenly said, Brother Stewart, I want to tell you a story. And then he went on to tell of a remarkable young woman on the campus of the Glasgow University when he was lecturing there. Wherever she went on the campus, he said, the fragrance of Christ followed her. For example, a group of unconverted students would be jesting and and telling dirty stories when someone would suddenly say, shh, shh, here she comes, quiet. And this young lady would walk by, unconsciously leaving the power and the awe of the presence of God behind her. He said that in the university prayer meetings, they could always tell if this young student was present. Whether she prayed aloud or not, or they could tell when she entered the room without hearing or seeing her, they sensed the presence of God in their midst. I said, Sir, that could be only one person. That was Helen Ewan. Yes, he answered, that was her name. She was a remarkable soul winner. Another feature of Helen's life was her deep appetite for the Word of God and a deep spiritual penetration into divine truth. She did not just leaf through her Bible for palatable portions which suited her fancy at the moment. She studied the whole book from Genesis to Revelation. Thus she became a deeply intelligent child of God, even at the age of 16 and 17. Her feet were firmly planted on the solid rock of the Holy Scripture, Even when she was a hard-working student in her secular studies in the university, seeking to make good grades for his glory, she gave much time for Bible study and meditation. This made her a well-balanced Christian. Though there was no time or place in her life for idle gossip or foolish talk, She bubbled over with clean humor and zest for life, and yet because Christ filled the whole of her horizon, she sought to magnify him through a holy life and and sacrificial service. At the university, Helen was preparing herself for missionary service among the Russian people of Eastern Europe, where I myself was later to labor Already she was learning the Russian language in preparation for her life's ministry. But God, in his wisdom and love, called her home at the age of 22. She only served the Lord for eight years. She'd been spending her vacation with an aunt in the kingdom of Fiji, And while she was there, looking about her master's business, she was taken ill suddenly and as suddenly was called home. It was so unexpected that it shocked us all. I was laboring at the time in an evangelistic campaign in a city in northern England When the news reached me of Helen's homecoming, I was stunned. I couldn't eat or sleep. So great was my grief that people were amazed to learn that 
This young lady from my city was no more to me than a spiritual friend and companion, not my fiancé. How is it possible, they ask, that a young man could be so broken down over the loss of anyone, especially only a friend? I was not alone in my sorrow. Thousands wept throughout Scotland and Great Britain. Many sought to express something of the blessing this life had meant to them. For instance, at one memorial service, a Christian leader stood and told the audience of how Helen's spirituality had so deeply affected him. I was old enough to be her father, he said. I'd known the Lord many years longer than she'd known him. But still she seemed so far ahead of me spiritually. On far-off mission stations, British missionaries grieved at the news. Alas, who would bear them up so faithfully at the throne of grace now? Who would step into this gap and take her place? Even many years later, when I would be again in Glasgow, one of the most thrilling experiences to be was to be with a group of Christian friends who would be sharing with each other something of this dedicated, radiant life and what it had meant to them personally. The very mention of her name was a charm, an irresistible force that drove one to his knees to cry out, Oh God, raise up others like Helen Ewan. Oh God, make me a better man for thy glory. Sometime later, when I had a few days free from my evangelistic meetings, I visited the cemetery where Helen had been laid to rest in order to once again give God thanks for such a life. And there I knelt before God and laid myself anew upon his altar, pleading that the fire of God would fall even on me. One of the grave diggers to whom I spoke could not at first recall anyone having been buried there, such as I described to him. You must remember that we're burying large numbers of people here. This is a public cemetery, he exclaimed. As I went on speaking, however, this strong, sturdy labor became deeply moved. Yes, I remember now, he said. When we were burying that body, I felt the presence of God all over this place. One night we were all having a special evening together, young people rejoicing in the Lord, having a good time. When my wife said, Is that Helen Ewan's photograph on the mantelpiece? Suddenly there was a dead silence. And she said, Jim, have I said something wrong? All the laughing ceased. And one by one, without anyone saying a word, we dropped down to our knees and we began to pray. Think of it, years after she had gone home to heaven, her name was so powerful. Oh, friends, I believe that this spiritual life of Helen Ewan is for every child of God. Now, what is the explanation of such a life? How could a young lady still pursuing her studies, never having preached a sermon or sung a solo, never having traveled more than 200 miles away from home, how could her life so affect people in all parts of the world that they felt a mighty general had fallen? The word of God says, One of you shall chase a thousand and two shall put ten thousand to flight. 
Helen's life had been worth more than a thousand ordinary Christians in the church, and the story of her life, translated into different languages, has continued to bless many today. What, I say, is the explanation? There is only one explanation. She was filled with the Holy Spirit. Helen, who was an ordinary young woman, became extraordinary simply because she surrendered all to Christ and appropriated for herself all that was hers in him. She, with unveiled face, took time to receive and thus reflected the glory of the Lord as she passed from one degree of glory to another. Helen Ewan, a fragrant life before Almighty God. I was a pastor it was just as the Holy Spirit began to move in my heart to call me out of the worldly pastorate I was invited to to go on a trip with my father he was old I said, yes, Dad, I'd like to go. And so I took my dad to what used to be the Greenlee Ranch out on the Colorado-New Mexico border. And as we were going, I was excited to go to the Greenlee Ranch. It's still called the Greenlee Ranch. It's been absorbed now into a much larger ranch. The family lost it when Grandpa Greenlee died. And then the family broke up as the eldest son made some fateful decisions regarding debt and cattle and the bank repossessed the Greenlee Ranch. And then Dad said, Ray, I really didn't want to come here to see the ranch. I really came because I wanted to bring you to to visit your grandmother's grave. Now, I'd heard stories about Grandma, but I'd never met her. She was not a large woman. Dad was a big man, as Grandpa had been. Dad was 6'3", 200 and some pounds, muscle, hand span of probably six to eight inches. A powerful man. He said, I wanted to take you, Ray, to Grandma's grave, and I wanted to visit one more time before I see her in heaven. And so I drove him out there in that fertile California or fertile Colorado land, a river passing close by down on the New Mexico border. He said, You've heard me tell the story of of Grandma. She came to an evangelistic meeting. She was a Methodist. She had been baptized by sprinkling. And in the meeting, baptism was spoken of. And the pastor said, we're going to have a baptism tonight. If you would like to be baptized by immersion following the example of Jesus, come tonight and we'll have an open baptism and as they were as they were leaving 
My father was driving an old Model A Ford pickup. Grandma said, Matt, I want to go be baptized tonight. So they both went to be baptized. And Grandma was invited by the pastor's wife to kneel with the other women who were going to be baptized. And Grandma said, I can't kneel. And the pastor's wife came and knelt before her and said, Mary, why can't you kneel? Well, she said, some years ago I was in a buggy accident and my knee is as stiff as a board. It won't bend at all. It was severely damaged in the, in the accident. And the pastor's wife said, let me pray for you and then as you go down into the waters of baptism, ask Jesus to come and heal your knee. And so when it was time to go into the baptismal tank, she hobbled in. They helped her over the, over the edge. And as she moved forward in that water, she began to cry out to God for his glory and for his power. And as she was put under that water, she said, Jesus, would you heal my knee that I could serve you better? As she was brought up out of that water, she suddenly began to jump up and down. She climbed out of the tank and began to run around. She said, Jesus has healed my knee. Jesus has healed my knee. As Dad stood there telling me again this story at Grandma's grave, tears came down my father's face. I can't remember ever seeing my father weep before. As we stood at that at that grave, I suddenly felt the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. It was a sacred place. He said to me, Ray, I took care of Grandma. I was only 19 when the farm was lost, when the ranch was repossessed. I had to go out and work on the road gangs in, in making roads and building bridges, driving a team of horses to grade the roads, hard physical labor. He said, I did it so I could care for Grandma. He said, but I want to tell you what she did. She was not at home very much. She was always on the move. There were women who would come down sick. And she would go to their home and she would live in a spare room and she would cook for the husband and the children and nurse the woman back to health. She would go out and take in clothes, bring them home and wash them and iron them. Her only heart was to serve Jesus. That was the cry of her spirit. Dad was silent for a bit. He began to point to different places around that great cemetery. He said, Ray, on the day of her funeral, the cemetery was jammed with people. 
people came from everywhere. I said, Dad, why? He said, because my mother had the spirit of Jesus. Everywhere she went, people's lives were changed, were transformed just by her humble service and her loving heart. And he said, we came and this huge throng of people with their buggies parked everywhere. With their, their new Fords, Model A's. He said they were parked all over. He said the man who ran the cemetery said he'd never seen anything like it. People came and stood and wept and praised Jesus. What I'm trying to say to you today is what happened in Helen Ewan's life or in Mary Greenlee's life is extremely uncommon. That complete giving of oneself to Jesus and that complete giving of oneself to serve Jesus to sacrifice your life for Jesus, to love and care for all of those around you, to win them to Jesus. This is a life that is intended for all of us. And this morning, as I waited before the Lord on this broadcast, I began to pray over a passage of Scripture. I want to give it to you. It's in the book of John, the sixth chapter. Verse 44, No one is able to come to me unless the Father, the one having sent me, may draw, may draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Have you been drawn to Jesus by the Holy Spirit, by the Father? Are you still resisting that calling by being so busy and so full of your own life that you have no time for the life of Jesus? We need a thousand Helen Ewans. We need a thousand Mary Greenleys. Jesus needs you to lay down your life for him. Is he calling you? Have you been coldly indifferent to his call? And I had to begin to repent as I prayed through this saying, Jesus, I've been so shallow. I've been so distracted. I thought I could go out amongst the people of the world and bear witness with the intellectual understanding I have of the gospel. I thought I could do that, and that's what you wanted me to do. That wasn't what Jesus wanted me to do. He wanted me to fellowship with him. He wanted me to draw much closer. There have been times when the Holy Spirit has fallen upon me with, with such presence and such power that all I could do is lay unable to move seeing and knowing the glorious presence of Jesus have you experienced this do you know the presence and the glory of Jesus in your life Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat from the flesh of the Son of Man and may drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Have you been 
Have you been eating the broken body of Jesus? Have you been feasting on Jesus? Do you have spiritual life in you, or do you simply have an intellectual understanding, and then you have thrown it aside, and you have lived casually before God, pursuing your own interests, your own desires? Oh, I pray today's broadcast has pierced your heart. I pray today there is aroused in your spirit a great hunger as there is in mine to know my Lord in a much deeper and fuller way, to know him completely, to feast upon him, to be filled not with his intellectual understanding, not with his teaching as important as those are, but with the Holy Spirit himself. O Holy Spirit of the living God, will you come? Will you do in us what you did many years ago in Mary, Ewan, in Helen, Ewan, and Mary Greenley? Lord, would you do that in us? Lord, I'm so so heartbroken over my own powerlessness, my own shallowness, my own emptiness. Jesus, I trust you. I trust you today to come with new power and new new revelations of Jesus and his glory. Lord, thank you. I pray in your name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress today. I'm, I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You'll find this broadcast as a podcast, and you'll find many other broadcasts and videos. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You'll find our address so that you can be in touch with us with tithes and offerings, so that you can visit us and begin to feast on Jesus with us. You know, I just, I glorify Jesus today. I praise his mighty name. I worship him. And I pray for you that you too will be filled with his presence. God bless you. I love you, my brother and my sister. I love you in Jesus. And I pray for you constantly. I'll talk to you soon. Oh